Father, we thank you for your word, your truth. Thank you for the freedom that we have this morning to open it and to read it aloud and to enjoy the fellowship of your people. We pray for our brothers and sisters who do not have the privilege this morning, that you keep them strong, that you hold them strong because they have a great king, just as we have our great king. Amen. What will you do if God's king is coming for you with judgment? What will you do if God's king is coming for you to claim back what is his? This morning as we come to 2 Samuel 8, it is the story of God's chosen king, King David, who rises to the occasion now both to exercise God's judgment and to claim what God has promised. The king is coming and the nations have to face him, like it or not. So now let me first tell you that chapter 8 of 2 Samuel is not written in a chronological order. Some of the events have already happened in chapter 1, and some of the events will be explained again in chapter 10 and further on. It is written specifically to follow chapter 7, because chapter 7, God has given promise to David, and God has given his promise to David's offspring. So chapter 8 is going to describe what God has promised he will fulfill in David, and because it has fulfilled in David, we will have to look forward to what he will fulfill in David's offspring. So do you get the picture? So it's not chronological, but it is linked very closely to chapter 7. So that's, if that's the case, let me read again chapter 7, even though we have done it last week, just a few verses of what God had promised David. So look at chapter 7, verse 9 to verse 11 with me. If you have your Bible, um, please look at it. Or if you can look at the screen, it's equally great. Verse 9, God said, Now I will make your name great, David, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own, and no longer will be disturbed. Wicked men will not oppress them anymore, and I will also give you rest from all your enemies." So as we begin um, verses 1 to verses 14, we see God fulfilling what he promised David in his lifetime, that David's name will be great and the people of Israel will have a home. But these two things, the great name of David and the home of Israel, hinges on David defeating the enemies and David executing judgment and David claiming what God has given So let me first give us a bird's eye view of verse 1 to verse 14 before we dive into the battlefield and you will not be lost in the midst of the trees, right? So I have a a picture there. I hope it's... Just look at the the color. The color code is to help us. If you look, verse 1, what what is going to happen is David will defeat the enemies in the west. Verse 2, David will defeat the enemies in the east. Verse 3 to 12, David will defeat the enemies up north. And verse 13 to 14, David will defeat enemies down south. Do you get the picture? So there are a lot of battles, but this is actually how it is arranged. Verse 1 here, verse 2 there, verse 3 to 12 there, and verse um, 13 to 14 down south. 
So with this picture in mind, we will not get lost when we start looking at all the battles. Um, we will actually follow the king as he defeats God's enemy, as he executes judgment, and as he starts claiming God's promised land. Okay, are you alright with that? Great, let's look at verse 1 with me then. The battle of the West, verse 1, let me read for us. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And he took Medak Amar from the control of the Philistines. So verse 1 begins with David's victory over their greatest enemy, the Philistines. He subdued them and took Medak Amar from the control of Philistines. Now the name Medak Amar is, is an unusual name. In fact, if you look around the maps, you can't find a place called Medak Amar. Um, because it is not the name of a place. Medak Amar actually, if you translate it, it means the bridle of the mother city. You know the bridle where you have a horse? If you have the bridle of the horse, you control the whole horse. So here, um, Medak Amar is saying um, that David has taken control of the bridle of the Philistine. And David now rules over the Philistines. In fact, there is, is, is a close read in our First Chronicles that will shed some light for us. What are the cities that David took? Let me just read to you First Chronicles 18. It sounds almost the same. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. He took Gath. Does Gath sound familiar? Gath is the city of Goliath. All right. So he took Gath and its surrounding villages from the control of the Philistines. So David took control of the west of Jerusalem from the hands of their longtime enemies, the Philistines that had raided and hunted the Israelites and King Saul until King Saul's death. They still couldn't defeat the Israelites, even though that was their job. And here David defeated and subdued them. Just one verse. And then the battle quickly moves to the east of Jerusalem, verse 2. Let me read this. For us, David also defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down on the ground, measured them off with a length of cord. Every two lengths of them were put to death, and the third length was allowed to live. So the Moabites became subject to David and brought him tribute. Now, Moab, Moab in a sense has some relationship with David, because after all, David's great-grandmother, Ruth, was a Moabite. But the relationship between Moab and Israel is not good. They have been threats of Israel from the time of Moses. In the time of Moses, Moses wanted the people to cross through the Moabite land. He says, can we cross through peacefully? And they said, no, you can't. And then later on, the Moabite women, they seduced the Israelite men such that they turned and worshipped Baal instead of God. And further on, the Moabites... They have this king by the name Balak. I don't know if you um, hear and find it familiar. So there's a king called Balak. Um, he, he tried to get a prophet Balaam to uh, curse Israelite. So Balaam came and when he was about to curse the Israelites, when he opened his mouth, he ended up cursing the Moabites. Uh, so this is what he ended up saying. Let me read to you in Numbers 24. So he's meant to curse the Israelite, but when he opened his mouth, he said this, a star will come out of Jacob, that is Israel. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of the Moab. So, so that was shocking to the Moabite king, right? Uh, but nothing happened until now. 
that the prophecy of the star of Jacob is finally revealed in David. God's king has come to execute the judgment that's overdue to claim what belongs to him. So while David's judgment, when you read it, ah, is so harsh, uh, what we actually read should be that he is so gracious, that one third of the enemies were not destroyed. Instead of seeing the methods of David's judgment, what we are meant to see is that God's judgment against the enemies is unavoidable. No matter how long you wait, God's timing will come, and the judgment against rebellions against God will come. And the rebellions against God will always catch up on humanity. So this is where David defeated the West and then the East. Now it moves on. The third victory is the battle up in the North, verse 3 to verse 6, which is the kind of orange color place. Uh, let me read to you verse 3 to verse 6. In fact, look at it together with me. Then David defeated Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah, when he went to restore his monument at the Euphrates River. Uh, you'll read more of this in, in the later chapters, but this is a summary. David captured a thousand of his chariots, seven thousand charioteers, twenty thousand foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. When the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck them down. 22,000 of them. He put garrisons in the Aramean kingdoms of Damascus, and the Arameans became subject to him and brought tribute. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. So the next enemy David defeated is Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. Now Zobah is a powerful Aramean empire up north that they have not fought uh, in the past. It goes well beyond Damascus. Damascus is just that little name there. And um, Zobah is all the way up. And then the map ran out of space, but Euphrates is further up. Okay, So this is the battle between David and the Aramean Empire. But now, again, the name Hadadezer is an interesting one that we are meant to catch, uh, meant to catch our attention, but we'll probably just slip past because it's not familiar. Hadadezer actually means, Hey, that is my help. Hadad is my help. Okay, Hadadezer equals to Hadad is my help. And Hadad is a pagan storm god. He's meant to smash the enemies. So Hadadezer's name is meant to say that Hadad will smash my enemies. But here you, we start to read that um, he's not much of a help. Okay, As you look at verse 3 again, it's actually saying this. David defeated the one who depends on the storm god. In fact, if you look behind the picture, it's actually a battle between the Yahweh, the God of David, the God of Israel, the God of creation, versus the, f- the false gods of Hadad. And Hadad proved to be quite useless. Hadadezer sought help from the Arameans, but whatever comes the way of the bulldozer of God's king, they get smashed. And the kingdom of Israel, for the first time, start to stretch up to the north. In fact, that is in fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 15. Let me just read to you what God promised Abraham in Genesis 15, the first book. He says, God says to Abraham, To your descendants I will give this land from Wadi of Egypt, which is down south, up to the great river Euphrates. So for the first time, the people of Israel start to occupy the land upwards to the Euphrates. But then how about down south? 
This is where the rest of verse 13 and 14 comes in later on. But notice this, this battle with Hadadezer, that when a king wins the battle, what he wants, he will accumulate. Okay, If you've got good resources, I'll use it for the next battle. Uh, you, they will want to accumulate horses and chariots. But look at what David did. This is what David did. He did exactly the opposite. Look at verse 4. David hamstrung all but a hundred of chariots, meaning that David basically crippled all the horses. You know, the hamstring, he just kind of cut the hamstring. The, the, the horses are useless. So he hamstrung all the horses except a hundred of them because this is in accordance with God's law. Deuteronomy says this in 17, Deuteronomy 17, God has commanded the Israelite king must not acquire a great number of horses for himself. And Israelites, as well as David knew, there were plenty of horses and chariots under the Red Sea. And they do not want to be that kind of uh, empire. So David hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariots. So David's victory, his execution of judgment, his claim of God's promise fully depends on God, which is what verse 6 tells us, isn't it? The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. So now after claiming the West, David is left with the South. And so verse 13 and 14 reads, look at verse 13 and 14. David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Sword. He put garrisons that is David's station, troops throughout Edom, and all the Edomites became subject to David. Again, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. So verse 14 actually concludes David's victory uh, and judgment and claiming of God's promised land. In fact, when you read verse 14, it says that David returned from striking down the Edomites. It sounds just like how David was introduced, isn't it, in 2 Samuel 1 verse 1, David returned from striking down the Amalekites. So you start to see that God has restarted his work and he will complete his promise with David. But now as we look at David's victory, David's judgment on the enemies and David's claiming of God's promise, although it clearly fulfills what we have read in 2 Samuel 7, there is actually a much greater promise after that, isn't it, that last week we looked at. Because there will be an offspring from David. There will be one with even greater victory. There will be one with even greater judgment. And the one who claim, will claim an even greater kingdom from God. So let me just briefly read that. Just a short recap of a, three verses from Second Samuel 7. Because this is the greater promise than the previous. Let me read for us Second uh, Samuel 7. God said, when your days are over, David, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. So this offspring, offspring chapter 7 of David, is a greater promise than David, in fact, when we look at chapter 8, the victory, the judgment, and the claim of David, it is not meant for us to just say, oh, that is great. It's meant to say and remind us of chapter 7. Now, this is great. How about the one that is coming, which will be greater still? What will the greater king look like? We have already extensively looked at um, last week that the greater offspring is actually King 
Jesus. But I just want to list out a few verses from the New Testament just to recap in case you were not here for us. And uh, in fact, in the New Testament, there are four accounts of the gospel and all of them put it as top priority to mention that Jesus is their offspring. Let me just read all of the four, just one verse from each of the accounts at the very beginning of each of the gospel accounts. Matthew 1 says this, right? Jesus, the Messiah, literally Jesus, the anointed one, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Mark, in his first verse, he says this, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the anointed the Son of God. Luke makes the point that the angels declare in, in, in Luke saying, Jesus will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendant forever. His kingdom will never end. And even at John, John uses the word of Nathanael to bring the heart and desire of Israel. This is what Nathanael said, which represents what the Israelites were waiting. He says, Rabbi, meaning Jesus, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. That's what Israel was waiting all the time up to the first century in Jesus' time. So dear friends, just as we have seen 2 Samuel 8 showing Jesus, uh, David as God's King who defeats enemy, who imposes judgment and who claims God's uh, promise, we are meant to look at chapter 8 and anticipate the greater offspring, King Jesus, that he will do a much greater work. The question is, how will King Jesus look like? How will King Jesus look like? I think if you have done uh, the Bible study this week, you might have read this passage, but I want to read it to us again, um, which is Revelation 19. Because Revelation 19, in a sense, is kind of a replicate of Second Samuel 8, except that it's uh, scarier. Let me look at Revelation 19, uh, and uh, let me read for us. Second Samuel, uh, Revelation 19, verse 11. John saw heaven standing open, and there before me a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True, that's Jesus. He is dressed in a robe deep in blood. His name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. We've just read that in Psalms 2 last week. He will rule with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of fiery wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh is the name written, Kings of Kings and the Lord of Lords. If you think Second Samuel 8 sounds like Victory sounds like judgment and sounds like claiming back. Revelation 19 gives us more. So dear friends, we are called in looking at chapter 8 to actually look forward to the coming of the king. And when Jesus returns, he's not going to be like the baby Jesus of Christmas that the world has hijacked for marketing purpose, for holidays and for selling of luxury goods. He will not be the Jesus that's despised carrying a cross that skeptics say, this is for weaklings. This religion is for weaklings. He will come the way that Revelation 19 says. And the world needs to know. Those who think that Jesus is a mere swear word might not have looked at Jesus of Revelation 19. Those who think that Christianity is just one of the good religions I need to know 
that King Jesus is coming as that of Revelation 19. Those who think that God has no rights on my space, you do what you want, you have no rights on my space, need to know that when Jesus comes, King Jesus comes, every piece of space is His. And those who oppress the weak and poor need to know when the King comes, He will execute judgment. But on the other side, those who have been persecuted for the sake of His King, they need to know that the King and His army is coming soon. Those who have suffered and made costly choices, those who have resisted sin, those who have struggled with desires for the sake and the name of His King, those who cry out longing for justice, longing for rescue, also need to know when the King whose clothes are deep in blood and the angels, the heavenly host that comes with Him, He will overrun the enemies of His people. And those who are His will receive into will be received into His kingdom. And those who are His enemies will face judgment. Let me read to you the judgment of those who are the enemies of God. You know, in this world where we cling on to creation, the things that are around us uh, and call them God, these things will turn around and eat the flesh of God's enemy. Let me read to you Revelation 19, two verses. It's a continuation of just now. And I, John, saw an angel standing in the sun who cried out in a loud voice to all the birds in the mid-air, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may feast the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses and their riders, the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small, the enemies of God's people, all laid out for you. Come and feast on them. The creation that the world that the world clings on to as God will turn around and feast on the flesh of God's enemies. Dear friends, what will we do when God's King comes to us with judgment? What will we do when God's King comes to us to get back what belongs to Him? No, we can either wait um, helplessly for imminent judgment or destruction, or we can turn to Him while there's still time, which is exactly what one of the kings in Second Samuel 8 did. So let me look at verse 9 and verse 10. A very wise king. Then too, king of Hamath heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadadezer. He sent his son Joram to King David to greet him and congratulate him on his victory in the battle over Hadadezer, who had been at war with Tu. Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and bronze. So Tu of Hamath, he saw what David has done, and he has only one option. He recognized that David was the king from God, and he's undefeatable. And he says, son, better bring your treasures out and bring to King David. And that's what he did. In fact, Tu was wise, because he responded to what was later Psalms 2. Because Psalms 2 has said this, kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, celebrate His rule with trembling, kiss His Son, or He will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For His wrath can flare in a moment, but blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So dear friends, there is a greater King, our King Jesus, and we need to recognize that we need to fear Him. Because Scripture tells us that all knees will bow whether they like it or not. Philippians 2 put it this way about Jesus. 
It says, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All of us will bow our knees. In fact, not just us, all in heaven and all who are dead, in heaven, on earth, on earth and under the earth, all must come up to bow to King Jesus. It's either with joy or with horror. And the King himself will claim all that belongs to him, which we see in verse 7 to 10. That the treasures of the nations are being brought to God's King. Here it was brought to King David, but David sees that the greater king behind his kingship is God. So this is what David did in verse 11 and 12. He dedicated all the treasures that the nation gave to him, and he dedicated the treasures to God. Look at verse 11. King David dedicated these articles to the Lord as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nation he had subdued. Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Amalek. He also dedicated plunder taken from Hadadazer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. So David, he recognized all treasures and all needs belong to the true king of kings. But now as we read on 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, we realize that the treasures that David dedicated uh, to the house of the Lord did not stay there. The treasures were taken, the house of God was set on fire. So that cannot be sufficient. In fact, it wasn't. And God spoke again in a time where the temple was destroyed through uh, the prophet Haggai, which we read just now. And this is what God said to Haggai. He said this, In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations. And what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory. And the Lord says the Lord Almighty, The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. God says through Haggai, The treasures of the world will still come to me because they are mine. And they will come to the Lord Almighty. In fact, the words of Haggai was fulfilled a thousand years after King David. There were a few men from a distant land. They appeared in the city of David, carrying with them their treasures, seeking across their borders to worship a king from God. They traveled beyond their nation so that they can bow their knees and offer their best to the kings of kings and the Lord of lords. The story of these few men we are all familiar with. We hear it every year. But let me read it to us. Matthew chapter 2. By you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When they, the wise men, saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child Jesus and his mother Mary. And they bowed down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasures and they presented him with gifts of gold, of frankincense and mirth. It wasn't just an accident. What God has said will come to his king. So two of Hamar recognizes who is God's king. And he 
humbly, willingly, and submissively presented himself to the king. The wise men of the east knew exactly who was God's chosen king, and they came to the town of Bethlehem and willingly and submissively and humbly present their treasures to the king. The question always comes back to us, isn't it? How about us? What will we do in the imminent coming of God's King when He comes? What will we respond? Do we resist Him? Do we continue to rebel against Him? Or do we come to Him willingly, humbly, in repentance? Do we willingly offer King Jesus what is rightfully His? Do we use His treasures for Him or for self-indulgence. You know, the treasures that God has parked with us for the moment is, is more than money, isn't it? God has parked with us our time, our resources, our will, our desires, our reputation, our everything. He just parked it with us. But the day will come where the flickering flame on our candle will extinguish. The day will come when the last breath that He has parked with us is exhausted. The day will come when the king that was like a baby that was shamed will come in his full glory with the angels and the heavenly hosts. On that day, will we find the joy, the comfort, the assurance that we've been longing for? Or will we come to his presence in horror and fear and realization that he was not our king? On that day, God's king will reign with justice and righteousness over all who come under him. And that's where we kind of draw a close to us as we look at 2 Samuel 8 verse 15 about the reign of God's king. Let me just read verse 15 for us. David reigned over all Israel doing what was right, what was just and right for all his people. You know, when I read 15 to 18, there's so much that comes out that I feel like, ah, there's, there's so much gems there. But the focus is really that when King Jesus, King David received God's promise, he reigned completely, comprehensively, justly, and rightly. David reigns the way that God's king rightfully reigns. So that is the picture of 2 Samuel 8. But by now we know 2 Samuel 8 is meant to point to the king who will come, the offspring of David. And this is what the king will be like. Isaiah 9, verse 7. On the greatness of his governance and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. When King Jesus comes... Justice and righteousness will either be feared by his enemies or be welcomed by his people who are longing for it. Because if we are people who long for the return of the king, his justice and his righteousness will bring us relief. But if we are not looking for his return and he comes, his justice and his righteousness will bring us horror. How will we respond to him? Because when he comes, There is no treasures that are not his. There is no space that are not his. There are no corners that his enemies can hide. Because there is no place that are not his kingdom. As we close, I think it's worth for us to just um, pray to God. 
as we reflect on our own daily decisions in our lives and as we respond to Him rightly ourselves. So I'll just give us a little bit of time to pray and then I'll just close uh, briefly. Let me close us in prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we pray this, Father, as we look forward to the coming of your kingdom and of King Jesus, and as we have seen the kingdom of David, we know God that the kingdom comes with it victory as well as judgment, joy as well as horror. We pray, God, that you will set us right in our relationship with you. We ask that we continue to cling on to Jesus as our King so that when His righteousness and His justice comes, we will rejoice and will not be in horror. For those of us who have not known our Lord Jesus, Father, we pray that you will make clear for us that we will give ourselves to the King. For He will receive us who come to Him and He will forgive all sins and all rebellion against you. So Father, we pray your Spirit work in each and every of our lives for Christians as well as those who are seeking that we will all come to you. In Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen.